Welcome to Physicians of the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians cannot venture outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. My name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD and a Harvard MBA. I am interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. My name is Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Shankar, who I first met close to a year ago. Mark is vice president at Summit Partners, a growth equity firm. So Alex, let's define a few terms. Before we get to growth equity, let's talk about private equity. So what exactly is private equity and what's a private equity firm or a PE shop as it's called? Great question, Chad. Let's break it down. So private equity is an investment class that allows one to invest in private or public companies. In the PE world, the companies tend to be mature with a history of stable cash flow and profit generation compared to the VC world in which companies tend to be early stage and high risk. A PE shop may engage in what is called a leveraged buyout or an LBO, where it buys businesses with a combination of cash and debt. The PE shop seeks to achieve profit from two sources. The first is focused on increasing the standalone value of the business by improving operations, decreasing costs and increasing revenue. And the second is focused on using the money generated by the business to pay back the debt and increase the value of the equity. So imagine that you buy a business worth 100 US dollars for $20 in cash and $80 in debt. You improve the business so that it's worth $140 and you use the money generated by the business to pay back the $80 of debt. In five years, you go and sell the business that you've bought for $20 for $140, making $120 in profit. Like in the venture capital world, PE shops are organized as partnerships. They raise a pool of capital from limited partners, say external investors like sovereign wealth funds, endowments, or institutional investors. And the money is managed by general partners in the PE shop. The work involves an advanced understanding of financial analysis and modeling, more so than in the VC world, where industry trends, startup idea, and credibility of the co-founders tend to be more important. So Shad, what about a growth equity firm? How does growth equity fit into all of this? Well, Alex, a growth equity firm occupies the middle ground between a VC firm and a PE shop. Growth equity invests in companies that are more mature than the early stage startups that VC firms typically invest in, but maybe less mature than the ones PE shops typically look at. At the very least, the companies that growth equity firms care about need to have the potential for high growth so they are typically not the very mature and stable cash-generating companies that we see in the PE world. So as we've mentioned, Mark focuses primarily on healthcare investing at Summit Partners, which invests in growth equity. Prior to Summit, Mark worked on the healthcare investment banking team at Goldman Sachs. In addition, he served as a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, and was an emergency medicine resident at New York Presbyterian Hospital where he held the position of chief resident. He holds a BA from the University of California, Berkeley, an MD from the George Washington University School of Medicine, and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Thank you so much for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. really appreciate the invite and getting to chat with both of you. Mark, thank you for coming to our show. I'm very excited to have you with us. Can you tell us more a little bit about yourself and how your early years prepared you perhaps for a career in medicine and how you made the choice to go in the direction of medicine? 
Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a city called Thousand Oaks. It's a little bit north of Los Angeles. Uh, youngest of three siblings. Parents are immigrants from India. So, you know, academics was, was generally a pretty high priority growing up. And, you know, I was always interested in science and high school chemistry was my favorite subject. And, you know, I always had a feeling I was going to go do something either in, in medicine or research. Uh, went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and, and, you know, studied molecular and cell biology and actually really, really enjoyed the research aspect of what I was doing. I worked in a biophysics lab. You know, I just didn't see myself doing a, a PhD. No offense to you, Alex, but it's just, it was, uh, my brother was, you know, doing a PhD at the time and it was a lots of long, solitary hours that I couldn't see myself putting it in the lab. So, you know, branched out and tried to just explore what else was out there and, and started to explore kind of the business world a little bit in college and got at some point synced up with a group over at UCSF that was helping startups spin out of labs. Uh, academic uh, research being turned into companies. So I did a few of these projects and I was actually really, really excited by what we were doing. We were creating and building organizations, building teams, um, and helping these companies get off the ground. And I realized that through this process, some of the most useful people were the folks that were able to bridge clinical medicine with bench research and, and really helped understand how you know, trials had to come together and served as advisors for these companies. So, you know, I ultimately decided you know, I didn't know 100% what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew there was some intersection between patient care and building and creating things that I was interested and excited by. So I went to medical school, and this was kind of during the height of the Great Recession in 2009. So, you know, I figured if nothing else, there's a great way to to wait out this storm. Nobody knew how long that was going to last. And then got to med school and, you know, really enjoyed the patient care aspect of it. I, you know, knew that I wanted a career where, you know, I got to work with my hands, talk to people and kind of be a generalist is what I realized during my third clinical year of med school is that I, I wanted to learn kind of about everything in medicine. I didn't want to be hyper specialized in, in one specific area. And I got to my emergency medicine rotation and ultimately met some mentors who worked just a few days a month, but they had completely different careers, either in venture capital or in policy you know, you got to be in a really exciting environment, you got to be a generalist in medicine, you got to do procedures, and you could work as much or as little as you wanted. And I finally found some mentors that were open to that idea. So that's what took me down that path and did a residency in emergency medicine at New York Presbyterian and loved all of it. I, you know, soaked all of it in and, and really enjoyed seeing patients and, you know, enjoyed the ups and the downs of working in a city emergency department. But, you know, ultimately, you start to realize as you get a little bit older and you start to see people, you know, 15, 20, 25 years out of residency that burnout is very real. And, you know, you need a way to diversify your career, especially in something like emergency medicine. And the world, as I saw it in healthcare, was changing pretty rapidly, but it was all changing outside the walls of the hospital. I was in a very, you know, traditional academic department in an academic hospital system. And it was very difficult to get really anything clinically impactful done or, or passed through a committee. And that could take years. You could spend the first 10 years of your career getting an IRB approved for a research project. So, you know, I, I made the decision sometime towards the beginning to middle part of residency that I want to be a part of kind of the change and the clinical impact happening outside the walls of the hospital, not in the walls of the hospital. And when I looked at what was going on, it was a ton of consolidation, a lot of mergers and acquisitions. There was a lot of, you know, growth equity money helping to build these care models and and companies. And I wanted to do what those folks were doing. I just didn't have the skill set to be able to do that. I was a doctor and 
and didn't really have a formal understanding of finance or M&A. So I decided to go to business school to kind of make that transition, landed up at HBS, spent some time investing in banking. And then about a little bit around a year ago, landed up at Summit Partners. That's kind of the long story, long story there, but of how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. Mark, that's a really great story. And I have a couple of follow-up points. And I mean, look, I do agree on the PhD perspective. I hope my supervisor doesn't hear this, but (laughs) I I mean, whenever I'm I'm remembering basically like my first year, just learning how to do basic stuff in Python, because I'm from a clinical background that I've never coded before. And then like, for example, my colleague who, who has a bachelor's in computer science doing what I do in a week and like an hour. (laughs) So that was a very interesting experience, but at the same time, like a very basically steep learning curve. I think the other thing that you've mentioned, and this is something that has come up in previous episodes, which is, I mean, Chad and I have an immigrant history. I appreciate what you've shared about basically the fact that you have an immigrant history as well. And I think there is a shared experience that Uh, Whenever you are in this situation, academics are so important and doing the hard work and like progressing academically and remembering what your parents had to do to get you to this position and how this creates a real responsibility to achieve and progress. That's a very powerful insight, really. And I think the last aspect, which is around the intersection of patient care and building things. And and I definitely can relate with that because I think, so for example, I've worked a little bit with like tech transfer office at Oxford. And what you realize is that by building such products, you can actually like impact lives of millions of patients. So the scale of impact there is massive. So I have a follow-up question around what you mentioned. And that is, were you always interested in shifting away from clinical medicine or did it just emerge as you explained? And I think one of the questions that our audience would be interested in is what was the hardest element in that transition? Yeah, so I think I always knew I was interested in some sort of a hybrid career. So, I mean, what brought me to medicine initially was seeing how some of these doctors who you know were working with startups were actually able to really bridge some of the knowledge gaps. So I knew I wanted to do something to that effect where I could take my clinical knowledge clinical understanding and be the bridge to helping people build organizations or really kind of just having a hybrid career. And that was really just solidified as I got farther along in my clinical training when I realized the key to sustainability in especially a a specialty like emergency medicine is having something else that you do. Because, you know, if if you're just working three, four or five shifts a week and can get very difficult. So I always knew that's kind of vaguely what I wanted to do, but it took me a long time to figure out what exactly that looked like. And I don't think I really figured that out until I got to, really until I got to business school, but I knew kind of what specific direction I wanted to go in residency. I knew it wasn't policy. I knew it wasn't administration. And that I really wanted to kind of be in the private sector, working with entrepreneurs to build stuff. Yeah. I mean, it kind of evolved over, over time there. And sorry, what was your second question? The second question, uh, Mark, was around what were the biggest challenges in making that transition? Because, for example, I remember when I was thinking about it, I had so many thoughts like, what if, for example, I fail in this transition? What would people think? Should I leave, for example, the low risk medical career and all these sorts of questions? So I was wondering about your experience when you were making that transition. What was the hardest thing? Sure. I think the hardest part, and I think I always had some degree of personal conviction that this was what was right for me. So Internally, I don't think there was much that was difficult about it. I think it was really the external communication that got difficult. As you guys know, you know, I think the probably the most difficult conversation I had on this was when I went to go tell my program director in my fourth year residency, hey, I don't think I'm going to look for an academic or even a clinical job. I think I want to go to business school. 
So the hardest part was really telling people in the clinical world who had invested a lot in getting me through residency and and being great mentors and teachers that I had a distinctly different vision for what my future career looked like compared to what they thought my career should look like. And I think that's probably something that every physician that leaves clinical medicine goes through is, is the conversations with clinical mentors. And especially as you guys know, in medicine, it's all in or bust, especially in these academic institutions. So that was the biggest challenge for me. And then I felt like once I got to business school, you know, I found a lot of like-minded people, found people that were very encouraging and had seen people you know, make similar transitions. So from there, it became a lot easier to talk to folks about it. And as I recruited into investment banking and then private equity, it, you know, it was a background that a lot of people liked and thought was interesting and fairly unique. Once I got through that initial hurdle, it seemed like the you know, it got a lot easier. And then from a family perspective, everyone was very supportive and, you know, generally understood what I wanted to do. And, you know, you only live once, so you might as well do what you want. Thank you, Mark. And just building on the points that you've mentioned, which is, for example, that you've realized that policy is not for you, or for example, research is not for you. I was wondering about how important do you think it is trying these different potential career paths to build that conviction and build, for example, the understanding of what an individual wants to achieve in their life. So, for example, I know in medical school, you've worked at the White House on innovation policy. You've done some work with Rock Health. So I was wondering how important are those different bits of experiences in building your thesis around what you want to do in the future? Sure, that's a good question. You know, I'm not one of those folks that has to rule out everything before finding the right thing. It's just it helps to do other things so that you know that the grass isn't always greener on the other side. So you're not always looking at something else and saying, hey, maybe I wish I'd gone and done that. But, you know, I think once you find something that excites you and something that you that you could see yourself doing for the long haul, you know, you don't need to keep exploring and doing other stuff. I think there's a tendency, certainly among physicians who, you know, have a are relatively risk averse to really want to shake every single option out before making a decision. And maybe part of that comes from the way we make clinical decisions. And I'm an ER doc, so we make a bunch of crazy decisions with incomplete information all the time. So it's it's just, uh, but I think once you find that thing that you want to do, you know, stop second guessing yourself and just go do it. And I'm glad I had these experiences because now I know that, you know, policy you know, similar to academics, it's a very slow moving world and you can work on something for two years and it, it turns into nothing. And some people love thinking about policy and that's what motivates them. But for me, I wanted to see impact. And, you know, it was you just didn't know if what you did that month was going to turn into anything or what you did that year would turn into anything. And at Rock Health, you know, I think they're a very early stage uh, organization. And some people love early stage and they love venture capital and they love working with true startups. Yeah, I think for me personally, as an emergency room doc, I like thinking about systems and existing organizations and things like patient flow and all that sort of stuff. And for me, I think I naturally realized I was more attracted to later stage businesses and, and working with entrepreneurs who had gone through the early stage stuff and had built scalable products and uh, were at a different stage in their life cycle. Thank you, Mark. And just building on your point that the grass is not greener on the other side, I think one of the insights that we've got from previous conversations is that some physicians think that going on an alternative career path is actually easier, but that's frequently not the case because I think one of the skills that physicians develop is grit and dedication to service and, and commitment to doing very high quality work and doing what's the best for the patient. And I think other career options would require the same amount of effort, if not more. So for example, like if you're working in investment banking and you have a live deal and you have to stay, for example, very late or like 
you're working on an active deal in private equity. It's about the same level of, of effort, if not more. And so one important aspect there is actually the passion and what you actually want to do. I want to perhaps shift the conversation a little bit to your experience in Goldman Sachs. Chad tells me that in Goldman Sachs, you used to work with his college friend and physician, Max. <laughs> what a small world. And I'm curious to know what skills have you developed as a medical doctor in Goldman Sachs? And when you were going into finance, what were the strengths of your application and what were the weaknesses that you needed to mitigate against? Of course, as a clinical doctor, because I think this is a question that our audience would be, who are interested in going into finance, would be thinking about. Sure. So to answer your first question, you know, I think there's a ton of parallels between the, all these high-intensity jobs. So whether you're talking about emergency medicine or investment banking, ultimately, they're, they're all process-oriented jobs where tasks have to get done at a deadline, and you're working with a, a team. And sometimes a team can be in one place, it can be in multiple places, you know, cons- consults in the hospital, you know, wherever they are, but you're coordinating a lot of activity. So it didn't actually feel all that different. You know, you're working under stressful deadline-oriented timelines, and it's exactly the way it is in the emergency department. You know, I think the differences in investment banking or in private equity are dealing with maybe one or two different work streams at a time in the emergency department at 40, and you have like 500 things just moving around in your head all the time. So I think I was well-prepared from kind of a process and workflow perspective. And I think the other thing is that, you know, you just get so used to working in teams in the ER that when it comes to investment banking and you're working with, you know, a managing director, a VP, yourself as an associate and an analyst, managing an analyst and managing up to a VP and a managing director, it's, it seems exactly like being, you know, like a second year resident again. You're in that exact same position of, you know, you're responsible for making sure the product comes together and you're managing and messaging that upwards to your VP and your managing directors. So it really wasn't different. That was actually very surprising and, and interesting. And I actually told that to a lot of my emergency medicine colleagues of how transferable some of these skills are. I think the other thing too is you just get so used to dealing with the with the good and the bad of any job and just taking it in as a whole. Like you know, when you show up to the ER on a shift and you know, inevitably a lot of inefficiency, a lot of bad things happen, a lot of good things happen. You just assume that's just your day and you're there to take care of whatever comes through the door. And I think if you translate that same mentality to a job like investment banking, you know, there's a lot of things you don't want to do. And there's a lot of things that are interesting and exciting to do. And you just assume that's your job and you just go do it without really thinking too much about, you know, about that. I think that makes the job a lot easier. So that I think, you know, pain threshold was higher coming out of residency. Ability to just, you know, process and work on deadlines was uh, kind of refined during that time. So a lot of parallels there. And then I think, you know, in terms of, you know, help my application, I think, you know, there was a lot of, there's a ton of biotech work going on right now. And and every single bank is doing a ton of biotech M&A and equity work. So I think they were interested in somebody with a technical background, certainly. But, you know, I kind of articulated a lot of the same stuff I just said to you guys, to to folks during interviews of, you know, why I thought it would be a good fit and why I thought the job was interesting. I think the fact that, you know, you have somebody who worked in high intensity environments on tight deadlines and managed a bunch of work streams at the same time was generally net positive. So I think they'd like that. And I was a little bit older as well, which, you know, was either a a plus or a minus depending on who was interviewing me. But I think, you know, the folks that weren't averse to taking a 31-year-old summer associate were, you know, I think they had a broader outlook on things. Mark, thank you very much. Those are great insights. And I really enjoyed uh, listening to them. I'll hand over the mic to Shad to continue with his questions. 
Yeah, thank you, Alex. And thank you, Mark, for a great conversation so far. What you said about sort of transferable skills and some of the skills you learned in your residency and in medical school and how that transferred over to the investment banking world really resonated with me. And I think that's also a recurring theme that I've heard from a lot of docs in the business world and that I keep telling my friends that are in the clinical world right now. And I'll expand on that question a little bit more with the next one, but let's shift from Goldman Sachs to sort of your your work at Summit Partners. You know, you focus on investing in the healthcare space. So can you describe to our audience in just a little bit more granular detail what your day-to-day work is like, what your responsibilities are, and and maybe if you could also tie in how your MD has helped you navigate your specific role right now on the buy side. Sure. So for a little bit of background, I'm a, I'm a VP on the healthcare venture capital team at Summit Partners. And so what that entails is, you know, the way our teams are structured. So you have associates who, you know, do a lot of sourcing, they put together models, and they really run point on a lot of the work we do. We have VPs who coordinate all that activity and are out, you know, also talking to entrepreneurs and companies and out traveling. And then, you know, bumping up good investment ideas to, to our managing directors. So my job now, kind of during the pandemic uh, and post-pandemic, are relatively different. So I joined Summit Partners at the height of the pandemic back in July, where really travel was not a part of the job. You know, I would say about during the last year, probably about 50% of my time is spent just talking to people, talking to entrepreneurs, talking to portfolio companies, talking to CEOs that we're working with at uh, Summit Portco's and kind of really learning about companies and and helping kind of coordinate stuff within our portfolio. So that's probably about 40, 50% of the job. I would say another, you know, 30 or so percent of the job is just, you know, digging in, doing market research, working with the associates on that stuff, and really getting smart on specific areas. And the rest, I would say, is, you know, a combination of working on stuff, you know, within our port codes, you know, whether that's a debt refinancing or, or something kind of technical that needs to get done that you're running point on. You know, and then when you're in deal execution mode, that, that kind of consumes most of your time. I would say about 80% of your time is spent on that specific deal. So that's, you know, a ton of, as the VP, you're kind of running, running the whole process and making sure things are moving forward. You know, your job is dealing with uh, legal teams from both your side and, you know, the company you're working with, dealing with investment bankers, dealing with management, dealing with the entrepreneurs. So you guys are really coordinating all this activity, making sure the deal is progressing smoothly you know, helping negotiate things like employment agreements and, you know, all the nitty gritty nuts and bolts stuff uh, that kind of needs to get done to make sure, you know, a deal comes together. So I'd say about 80% of your time is spent, you know, in deal execution mode at that point. And then kind of another 20% is on all the other stuff I spoke to you about. And that changes kind of dramatically based on where you are in a deal process. And then now that the pandemic, you know, is largely, you know, restrictions have been lifted, travel is coming back. So a lot of these Zoom calls I was doing, Previously, you know, would convert into in-person meetings. So, you know, you speak to a company, you know, once and, and things seem like they could progress nicely and you take a look at their information, it makes sense. You know, you just hop on a plane, you go out and, and visit them. So, you know, I think that element of in-person meeting is, is going to come back to the investing world is already coming back. So it's nice to be able to get out from behind my desk and actually go out and, and visit people. That's very helpful, Mark. And I appreciated how you broke it down in terms of percentages, because I think a lot of the times when you talk to people, they really talk about 
their job at a higher level. Like I do investing or, you know, I help clients with A, B, and C. And I used to do the same thing when people, the younger folks used to ask me about sort of, you know, what is it like being a doctor? What is it like being a surgery resident? But now I kind of find it helpful to really get down into the nuts and bolts and explain hey, on a typical day, this is what I'm doing in the morning. This is what I'm doing in the afternoon. And it just gives them a little bit more visibility and more clarity into exactly what you're doing. Helps our audience figure out whether this is something that they would enjoy doing or not. And also appreciated the point you made about sort of how life has changed pre and post pandemic. I think a lot of professional services firm, a lot of finance jobs have definitely changed. And there's a lot of stuff in the news right now about folks pushing to come back into the office in the investment banking world. Uh, we don't have to go there, but that's definitely in the news if people want to read about it. Sort of shifting gears here a little bit and focusing on healthcare trends in general. What are some emerging healthcare trends you've noticed uh, as you've navigated your job? Just you know, talk to us a little bit about what are the sort of things that gets you excited about the future in healthcare? Yeah, you know, I feel like healthcare has changed dramatically probably in about the last 10 years. And a lot of that is visible to patients and the public, and a lot of that is not. And a lot of it's not even visible to physicians. There's a lot of changes going on on the payer side, on the back end, in the way health systems get paid that has changed dramatically. So I think one of the things that you know I'm generally very excited about in understanding how to transition care models to is to how providers can take risk. So now when we think about how you know insurance is trying to transition from fee-for-service to at-risk, payment, you know, the idea, the question is, is how do you take, you know, many providers who are very fragmented, don't have scale and transition them to risk bearing models and take incapitated payments. So that's broadly, you know, I think a a major trend that's going to evolve over the next 10 years and probably even beyond that'll get refined. That excites me because it gives you the opportunity to really build out scaled, sustainable care models with integrated providers that are able to take risk and manage risk in ways that they just weren't able to as independent docs. And, you know, I think as payers move in that direction, that's going to be extremely important. And I think kind of along that vein, too, as you see programs like Medicare and Medicaid Advantage becoming much more popular, that opens up the door for a lot of, you know, ancillary clinical services that, you know, are great for patient care that payers are a lot more excited about. And you see this going on in the geriatric world when there's a lot of, you know, home care and support services that otherwise in a fee-for-service world just wouldn't have been paid for, but makes a ton of sense for payers to uh, foot that cost when you're talking about a Medicare Advantage plan. So I'm excited about, you know, shifting to a risk-based world where, you know, you see a lot of ancillary services that are great for patients actually being you know, taken seriously and paid for because it makes sense to save costs on the back end. And I think additionally to that, another trend that really does excite me is the ability to use virtual care to, to see patients on a much larger level than was previously available. And I think we saw this really take hold during the pandemic, certainly amongst younger folks. But I think the ability to offer remote care is going to become front and center going forward. And it's unclear, I think, to everyone what that's actually going to look like. Is it just going to be a Zoom call? Is it just going to be a FaceTime call? Or is there going to be a different, you know, proprietary telemedicine platform for every single, you know, disease state is unclear. And I think you see people kind of arguing for all sides of it, but generally excited about where virtual care is going and how to integrate that into existing care models in the most efficient and meaningful way for patients and for providers. So those are kind of the broad trends. And then I think as with as with anything, I think, you know, we're starting to see a lot more in the way of patient engagement, you know, engagement with physicians as communication becomes much more rapid. 
And I think that'll lead to, you know, increasing use of technology and more use cases that we hadn't previously seen. So that's broadly another thing that excites me as well. Thanks, Mark. Those are really fascinating. And I think, you know, if I can pull out a thread and sort of connect some of the dots that that you talked about, I just find it interesting how the arc of medicine and its interaction with technology has changed. You know, in the turn of the 20th century, there were a lot of dogs doing home visits. Uh, that's sort of how a lot of medicine was being conducted. And then as medicine got more and more expensive and more complicated, and you needed all of these different resources and all of these machines, you know, it became centralized within a hospital system. But now you're seeing, especially in the VC world, and perhaps also in, in the growth equity world, there is a pull for sort of decentralizing healthcare away from these acute care centers, such as uh, hospitals, uh, towards people's homes and towards virtual care. It seems like it's sort of come full circle and, and technology has been involved along the way in a very exciting fashion. So I think the other point you mentioned about physicians not often having visibility as to what are the changes that are going on in the healthcare space, I think that's very, very important because this pull towards decentralization is not something that people really I don't even think it's that they don't feel comfortable talking about. It. I think a lot of folks don't even, you know, think about the subject in a robust way. So uh, I think those are great points to sort of bring up. Changing gears here a little bit, wanted to talk about the growth equity and private equity model in general. You know, given that growth equity and PE companies invest in more established companies that carry less risk of a binary risk profile. How do these firms think of positioning themselves during a period of rapid innovation in the healthcare space? Some of the rapid innovation that you just described. So in essence, how do these firms interested in later stage investments capture the upside potential of rapid disruption? Yeah, no, that's a, a really good question and, and something that I think everyone in growth equity thinks about all the time. So, you know, typically what we're focused on is working with folks that have already shown a clinical impact and shown that they have a scalable product and that they just need help bringing that to a larger audience. We want to work with those folks. Those people that have gotten through that binary risk phase and come out the other side, who broadly have shown that they're able to you know, do something to make clinical care better. So we may not share in the kind of upside that a venture capital firm does. It may not be you know, 100x growth, but certainly you know, 5x. And I think that's because you know, we're coming in at a much later stage. And I think broadly, when you think about growth equity, what actually excites me is our ability to go in and integrate many of these different services. So while somebody in the early stage might just invest in one company with a product and help you know, validate that product clinical impact and financial feasibility, I think what we can do on the growth equity side is actually create platforms. So we take you know, several of these sorts of companies or several products and say, look, these all make a ton of sense together. You're all selling into the same end market. You know, your customers are the same. There's a ton of synergies. We should bring all of you guys together and create a platform that offers shared set of services in, in a clinical area. So I think our ability to capture the upside, but to do it in a way that's more risk averse is certainly interesting. And our ability to create platform opportunities for these folks that have already de-risked their product is a, is a great way to think about, you know, what we do. And we can do this in specialties. We can do this in things like life science manufacturing and across the healthcare spectrum. So it just gives us a lot more flexibility in the way we think about our investments. So yeah, so that's broadly how we try to Ourselves. Thanks, Mark. You know, traditionally, I think, at least in business school, a lot of people think about growth equity as sort of the middle way point between venture capital and private equity. And I think, you know, although there might be some truth to that, I think growth equity also has its set of tools, unique tools that you can employ to manage risk and manage returns 
that are distinctly different from the venture capital world and distinctly different even from the private equity world. And we go into some of those differences in, in our podcast as well, in our introduction to our audience. So changing gears here a little bit and want to talk about the MBA and what that means for clinicians. You mentioned it a little bit and you talked about how you didn't really, really fully realize what you wanted to do until you came to business school. And so you have an MBA from HPS where both Alex and I are pursuing the same degree. You know, in a previous episode, we asked Dr. Felix Matthews the same question, and we're interested to hear your opinion. Do you think it's an important degree for docs to consider, especially those who want non-traditional careers? And if so, why? I would say it depends on what you want to do. You know, I think in my case where I knew I wanted to make the transition to something healthcare finance related, it was critical because, you know, you're essentially going and rebranding yourself from a doctor that kind of wants to do some finance stuff that, you know, it's very difficult to get anyone to take a chance and give you an opportunity. And then kind of really rebranding yourself to a person that is a finance professional that also used to be a doctor. So for me, that transition, I didn't see many different ways of doing it other than going to business school and learning that skill set and working in investment banking and all that good stuff. I don't think you need it, you know, if you want to go into administration or entrepreneurship or, you know, or you just want to figure things out. I think I've seen, you know, a bunch of docs go to business school with the intention of figuring things out. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I don't feel like HBS necessarily, you know, it was a great place. I learned a ton and it played a huge role in my life and career. But, you know, in terms of if you didn't come in knowing kind of roughly what you wanted to do, it's very easy to get lost in the whole experience and try to bite off a bunch of different pieces of a bunch of different things. And one day you want to start a search fund. The next day you want to, you know, go into investment banking. The next day you want to, you know, fly a plane, like you join the aviation club. So it's just like, there's like a million different things you can do that it's very easy to get lost. So I think it's great for folks that have a pretty clear sense of what they want to do you know, what they want to do is, is largely contingent on making that transition that the MBA helps them to make. With that said, you know, I know it's a lot easier even in the admin world to, you know, to rise up if you have an MBA and a lot of folks mandate that. But, you know, I think it's, there's a lot of skills that being a doctor, like I said before, translates straight over to managerial positions, finance, all these things. I don't think we need to go relearn this stuff. I do think there's some you know, technical skills in, in finance and all that sort of stuff that, you know, we would need to learn. But, you know, to manage people, I think doctors, for the most part, have those skills. It's a matter of, you know, getting in touch with those skills and bring them to front and center. But it's a lot of what we do on a day-to-day basis anyways. Thanks, Mark. And I'll just say, if HBS helps me learn how to fly a plane, I think I've come to the right place. I'm still looking <laughs> for that skill set. But uh, <laughs> I completely agree with you. You know, it's not for everyone, but I think it's something that you actively have to think about whether or not it makes sense for you. And having direction, that point really resonates with me because a lot of docs who come here have had previous forays into the business world and they have a little bit of direction. But you always get a couple of people who uh, are coming in with fresh new eyes and your mind is brought in so much and you're like, oh, there's so many different things to do. And you end up stretching yourself a little bit thin. So I think having direction from the very beginning and some idea as to why you're actually pursuing an MBA, which is two years out of your life, very, very significant portion of your life, that really helps. So just finishing up here and being mindful of time, you know, can you give our audience some finishing tips, maybe to those who are practicing right now or about to start practicing, how to get started on a non-traditional path and how to balance clinical and non-clinical interests? Yeah. So it's really difficult. And I talk to my friends, you know, all the time who are interested in making this transition. And I would say, you know, one, it's always easier to do earlier in your career. 
once you feel like you in, invested less time, it's it's much harder once you're on kind of that academic, you know, rat race to veer off that path. So make that transition sooner than later if that's something you really want to do. And then two, you know, once you've made that decision, start going in that direction. So start networking, start talking to people, start figuring out what it is that you want to do. Um, because unless you you find other like-minded people, you're always going to feel like you had this like some crazy harebrained idea. But it's actually surprising how many doctors there are that have hybrid careers or who have left clinical medicine completely. So start talking to those folks and just reach out, you know, on LinkedIn or through friends. People are always willing to chat, and I always found that pretty helpful when I was going through, you know, the business school application process. And folks I'm still in touch with now and who have been great mentors. So. Make sure you're talking to folks that have done what you do. And then the third thing is at some point, you just have to take the leap. You know, it, it's, that's probably the hardest thing to do. You know, I've had friends that talked about it, talked about it. At some point, they were like, I just have to go do this. The right opportunity came by and they and they made the, took the jump. So, you know, I think it's very important to at some point just take the risk. And the interesting thing is that the level of risk that people outside of medicine make every single day, they switch jobs, they switch careers, you know, it's much more variable than a clinical career. So, you know, I think these are risks that people take on a day-to-day basis and people take much greater risks as well. I think in our world of medicine, it seems like a very big risk, but in the scheme of things, your floor is only so low as a practicing physician. You know, you're not going to fall to rock bottom. So it's really not even that risky. So at some point, you just have to make that decision and, and do it. Um, so that'd be my advice. I completely agree, Mark. I think the notion of uh, starting early really resonates. Although I think, you know, some people decide later and it's better to do exactly what you want, even if it's later in life. I think starting early gives you a lot of clarity and helps you make decisions that you don't regret. And so, for example, if someone who's a resident or, or who's an attending knew what they know as a medical student, that can help them make decisions as to which residency they want to go into because certain residencies lend itself, like emergency medicine, lend itself more to having a dual career than other residencies. So those are important things that I think people need to be reaching out to mentors uh, early on in their career. So I certainly agree there. You know, Mark, this was really a, a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And again, you're you're welcome on here anytime. So thank you again for joining us. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful chatting with you guys. And hopefully we can all meet in person at some point soon. Alex, that was such a fascinating conversation with Mark. He had so many interesting takeaways. I just wanted to highlight two of them. You know, he talked about the notion of time. He said, and I agree with him certainly here, that you know, when you think about these things early and deliberately, they give you a lot of confidence, but they also give you space to make better decisions. And so let's say you're in medical school or you're a resident and you're early on in your residency career. If you know that you want to have a dual career in the business world, let's say either in finance or consulting or in entrepreneurship, and you also want to have an impact in the clinical world, then if you decide early on, it just frees up a lot of space to make better decisions. So let's say you decide in medical school, that can let you decide which residency you actually want to pick. Certain residencies are more amenable to having a dual career, for example, emergency medicine versus other residencies. But I'll say the caveat to that is, What's ultimately most important is doing what you're passionate about, and it's still never too late to venture off the beaten path. So it doesn't matter if you're 30 or 40 or 45 or older, if you think that you need to diversify your interests and move beyond clinical medicine and you're passionate about it and you're good at it, you should definitely uh, follow through. 
And my second point is sort of related to the notion of diversifying your clinical interests. He talked about looking beyond the hospital walls. And I very much agree with that because uh, a lot of the rapid changes that are taking place in the healthcare world right now aren't really visible to clinicians. They're taking place outside of the hospital walls. Inside the hospital, oftentimes things are very slow. You know, it can take a very long time to get, you know, an IRB approved for research purposes, or it seems like to change processes within a hospital, it can take a very long time as well. But all around us, you know, healthcare innovation is springing up. And so diversify your interests beyond the hospital walls and get to know what other players and other folks in the hospital, in the healthcare system are actually doing. And I think those two things are very key. And those two things are very important that I got out of a conversation with Mark. So over to you, Alex. Those are great takeaways, Chad. And I think I have two takeaways to mention. The first is around the importance of creating a narrative. And the second is around the sunken cost fallacy. So going back to the narrative perspective, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about this conversation with Mark is how beautifully he articulates his story and his transferable skills from medicine and emergency medicine residency to investment banking. So for example, he mentions that as an emergency medicine resident, you have to manage multiple workflows and you have to manage up to your attending physician and manage down to your first year resident, for example. And how in finance, you're in a similar position where you're managing multiple deals together and you're managing up to your seniors and managing down to your juniors. I think one of the most value-added activities that physicians can do when they're thinking about transitioning into an untraditional career path is to think about their narrative and really invest the time in building a narrative that would position them very well for the untraditional career journey that they want to go on. And that highlights the transferable skills, because as we've mentioned in previous episodes, medicine prepares you and trains you with a lot of skills that can be helpful in many different other career paths. And I think the other perspective is around the sunken cost fallacy. And this links to your point around the importance of pursuing something that you're really passionate about. I remember Mark mentioned that one of the hardest conversations that he had to do was with his clinical mentors when he told them that he is going outside the traditional clinical path, while internally he was very comfortable with his decision. I think many of us can potentially fall into this fallacy where we think that we've invested so much time in actually going on this clinical path and going outside this clinical path, although this is our passion, would be a waste of all the resources and all the efforts that we've invested in our training. But that's not actually the case because I mean, as we've mentioned, medicine prepares you with a lot of transferable skills. And the most important thing that you can do with your life is to follow something that you're really passionate about. So no matter how much time you've invested into a clinical path, those are great skills. You've impacted the lives of so many people. And at the end, what's really important to do in your life is to follow something that you're passionate about, no matter when that happens. So I think those are our takeaways for this episode. And I personally learned a lot from Mark and really enjoyed this conversation. Join us next episode in which we will have interesting stories of medical doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at the otbppodcast.com.